Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus chapter 19, beginning at the first verse. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, They entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, He consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up And the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Stephen, thank you for reading for us this morning. And if you have your Bibles, do keep a a note in that reading from Hebrews uh, and then flick back to our main reading, Exodus 19. We'll spend most of our time there. It's on page 76 in the Pew Bibles. You may also have discovered in a little bundle of paperwork you received in the way in an outline of our sermon. It might be helpful to have one handy just to see where we're going over the next few moments. And let's pray as we do those things. Father, the words that we have just heard read to us, uh, words that come from you, they are words that are both wonderful and awesome. 
as we see who you are revealed in those readings, we pray that you would help us to believe the words we've heard and help us therefore to be the people you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up, we had a rather temperamental video cassette recorder. You might remember those things. Some of you might even have one still. But uh, the problem with our particular VCR was that we would set it up to record a, a rugby match or a film, and it would begin to record, and then partway through, it would just stop recording, which meant that when we came back to watch the, uh, the recording, we would be partway through something gripping, and then nothing. And um, it was very frustrating. Although I should say that as a Scotland rugby fan, there were moments when I was glad I didn't know the final score of a particular game. But normally it was just plain frustrating. We, we want to see how a film or a story unfolds and finishes. Now when it comes to sports or films, to only know part of the story is very frustrating. But life goes on. I've only ever seen the first 30 minutes of Citizen Kane twice, but I can cope with that. Frustrating, but I can, I can live with it. However, it is much more devastating to only have half the story when it comes to God's story in the Bible. Last year, we looked at the first half of the book of Exodus, and we saw how God saves his people. In fact, uh, verses 1 and 2 of our reading just there this morning from Exodus 19 describes that journey up out of Egypt through the desert and finally now to the mountain of God. And so verse 4 says it all, really. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. One small sentence, but a a huge sequence of events. Remember last year, we saw God's people enslaved under Pharaoh, groaning, crying out for rescue. God heard, he acted, the plagues, the Passover, the the, the kind of the rush out of Egypt, the Red Sea, the the freedom from enemies, the the journeys through the wilderness, the, the lack of bread, the water, God keeping his people. And then finally now, Wonderfully, he has brought them to himself. I love the image of God as a great eagle, a picture of power. It's been effortless for God to carry his young, the weak, his people up on that journey to this mountain. And we saw last year that these ancient events prepare us for the even more wonderful rescue out of slavery to sin that we can enjoy today through Jesus. And so it is a wonderful, brilliant story. But why? Why does God rescue a people for himself? You see, we might be forgiven for thinking that this arrival at the mountain is the end of the story. After all, back in Exodus 3 verse 12, God made a promise to Moses at this very mountain that one day he will bring the then enslaved people of Israel up out of their slavery and to that very mountain. And here, Exodus 19, he's done it. Verse two, they've arrived. So we might think, brilliant. God, it's been a great story. Job done. We can go home now. But unless we read on, we miss the whole point of God's rescue. And can I say we miss, therefore, the whole point of history. 
And so over the next 10 weeks or so, we are going to be grappling with this great question, why does God save us? The answer that we will see is wonderful, it is mind-blowing, it is thrilling, but it is also awesome and fearful. It will cost everything we have. For the God of Exodus, the God of the Bible, saves his people for relationship. He wants to dwell with us and us with him. But this is not a relationship between two equals. It's not as if God is somehow our chum or our mate. Uh, We don't just hang out with God on our own terms when we want to, when it's convenient. No, this relationship between the awesome creator God and his people is to be one that costs us everything, our whole lives. It is, as the Bible describes it, a relationship of worship. That word can mean service, not just what we do here on a Sunday, but it does include that. But the idea is of a whole life in every area lived in a relationship of worship. And so I don't know what our plans are as we begin this new academic year. I'm sure we've had a moment to think about what is coming up this year. What do we expect to happen? What are we hoping for? I don't know, maybe it's a new promotion we have our eye on this coming year. Maybe it's a new hobby that we want to pick up or perhaps one we want to drop. Maybe we want to spend more time with family, a better work-life balance, or for some of us, maybe less time with family. Maybe we're planning our retirement and trying to think through how that will work out in practice. Whatever our plans, can I ask each of us, where does a relationship with God fit into those plans? Because we're going to see here in the book of Exodus that God wants everything, all of it, our whole lives. And sadly for many Christians, this question of, of, of how we relate to God, how we serve and worship him is pushed to the second page of our to-do list. If we have time, when it's convenient, when other things are in place. But Exodus 19 and 14 will say that is not God's purpose in saving a people for himself. If we're new to Christian things, can I say you're very welcome to be amongst us. Please keep coming back over this term. And as you think through what it might look like to become a a Christian, a person rescued by God, and and what that would look like for your future, come in and watch uh, these chapters unfold to see what that relationship will look like in practice. This morning here in Exodus 19, we begin to trace out this great theme of relationship. It won't be easy always this morning and beyond. There'll be questions that come to mind this morning that we'll take time to answer as we go through this term, but but please come back. Let's work hard together to understand the kind of relationship God has saved us for. You'll see in our handout that we've got two headings this morning to help us begin to understand this relationship. First of all, It is a privileged relationship. Some of us here were at a wedding yesterday here in this very building. Two much-loved members of our church family got married. And if you've been to a wedding before, you'll know what happens at a wedding. Two people make promises, vows. They, They commit to one another. And as they do that, they begin a new life, a new relationship of marriage. And I think that the scene that we come across here in Exodus 19 is a bit like 
a wedding moment or, or a marriage proposal. And this time it is God who is taking the initiative, proposing to his people that they enter into a relationship together. And you can see what God asks of his people. Verse five. Now, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. We're gonna think much more about what this obedience and covenant keeping involves next week. But for now, we must remember that in the context of Exodus, these things come to God's people who have already been rescued. Tamar helped us to remember that um, rescue comes first, then service. We don't serve God in order to be rescued, but rather because we have been rescued. But more on that next week. But for now, this week, I want to pick up the enormity of what God is offering to his people. Verse five. You will be my treasured possession. As far as I know, the the Queen of England is a a wealthy person. I imagine she owns uh, vast amounts of land and and buildings. But within that general and sizable wealth, I, I imagine that she has particular items that are especially dear to her maybe some jewelry or maybe a family picture. You see, within her vast wealth, there are particular things that are her personal treasure. Perhaps they live in a a small safe near where she lives most often. I think that's the picture we have here, but this time it is God, the great king of the whole world, who owns every nation on the planet. And yet for him, Israel is his personal treasure. My first job was delivering the local advertiser newspaper. I got one pence per paper. And uh, I had to deliver around 300 papers at a time. And they were so heavy that I couldn't carry them on my shoulder. And so I borrowed my mum's shopping trolley to lug these things around the neighborhood. And the, the, the teens of the local estate found it hilarious watching me uh, lug my mum's trolley around. Uh, and they let their feelings be known weekly. And uh, after weeks and months of sweat and at times humiliation, I had saved up enough money to buy a particular pair of trainers that I had my eye on for months. And just come with me, if you would, to that moment when I'm there in the shop. Remember, it's been months of, of hard work and I get to the till and I can remember the price. It was 40 pounds, 4,000 papers, you got that? I'm there at the till and I hand over the 40 pounds and I get from um, the, 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 the shop assistant a bag with my trainers. Now just imagine what happens next. Do I put the, the bag down and, and I walk out of the shop leaving the trainers there? Or, or on the bus on the way home, do I forget that they're lying there on the seat next to me and I, and I leave them on the bus? Not for a moment. I couldn't take my eyes off them. For me, in that moment, those trainers were my treasured possession for I had bought them at great price. I was very proud of them. As we think about what it means for us to be a people rescued by God, we discover that he has bought us at a great price, not simply with sweat and humiliation. In Acts 20, Paul describes God's people, the church, us sitting here today, And he says that we have been bought 
with the precious blood of Jesus. That was the exact amount required to free us from our slavery to sin and to redeem us and to bring us out into a new life with him. And so when God calls his people his treasure possession, understand that he paid everything to own us. Not because we deserve it. No, we are just like the people of Exodus. We are quick to grumble. We are quick to doubt. Even at times, we want to go back to Egypt. No, we are God's treasured possession simply because God is a God who is kind and gracious and bears with people, even people like us. I, I think this is almost, it's almost beyond comprehension. The whole universe is God's. He has made every bit of it, all the planets, the stars, the solar systems, they are all his. And yet within that vast and extensive wealth, he looks down on us even here this morning and says, those people are my particular personal treasure. But do you see, it also means that God owns us. He is jealous for us. He hasn't bought us at a great price so that we could then head off and live our own lives on our own terms, in our own way, and to forget about him. No, he wants us for himself. We are his treasured possession. Verse five continues. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In my gap year, I worked for a company that oversaw the, the power grid in central Scotland. I was a junior gap year trainee, the lowest of the low. And so when I was given my security badge, I discovered that it would only get me into the canteen, the photocopier room, and nothing else. And at the end of this large building, there was this, this imposing room right at the end of the site. It had darkened glass and um, it was a, a reinforced room. It had its own air supply and power supply. And within this hushed room was the control center where they uh, looked after the, the grid. And only the top engineers were allowed into this um, special place. And as a little trainee, I used to look down at the far end of the, the site and I could see just occasionally a little glimpse as a top engineer would go in and out the door. The door would open. I could just see a little glimpse into the control room, all the lights and dials flashing. And then the door was closed. I couldn't get in. I couldn't get near it. and didn't deserve to. Well, I think in Exodus 19, there's something of that hierarchy going on. There is a, a right to gain access into certain areas that others are not allowed to gain access into, not this time into some grid control room, but into something far more awesome, into God's very presence. In the days of Exodus, in the nations around Israel, there were lots of nations who worshipped deities, and they had um, within their system priests and these people had like the, the sort of top badge, the highest access. They were allowed into the temples, the place of sacrifices, but the normal people weren't. They look, could look on from afar. But here in Exodus 19, verse six, God says to his people, you won't just have priests among your midst. 
No, you will be a nation of priests. In other words, every single person will be able to be promoted to that extraordinary privilege of being able to access God's presence for themselves. What an extraordinary thing for God to do for a people. And it's no wonder, therefore, that he also says that they are to be a holy nation that is set apart from the other nations, living in line with God's standards, living God's way, and with a clear purpose to their lives as they served and worshipped God. This is a most privileged relationship. And as Christians, we discover that the events of Exodus 19 are not events that we watch from afar. No, they are our events. For in the New Testament, we discover that we are that people. 1 Peter 2 says that the church, us here gathered, we are that royal priesthood. We are that holy nation. We are those people who belong to God with direct access to God himself, made holy through the washing of the blood of Jesus and with a clear purpose to go out into the nations, praising and exalting God. God has saved us for a purpose, a relationship with him, a privileged relationship. Back in Exodus verse, uh, 19 verse eight, the, the people hear this extraordinary offer and they respond and the affirmative, they are eager to enter into this relationship. And you can see why. But then in the rest of the chapter, they begin to realize just exactly with whom they have entered a relationship. And that is our second point. This relationship, well, it is a perilous relationship. I uh, like climbing mountains I like looking at mountains. I think they're beautiful. I even like um, standing up at top of a small mountain, looking around and enjoying the view you get from the top of a mountain. But this mountain in Exodus 19 is different. It has been set into the satnav since Exodus 3 as the destination for Israel because it is the place where God dwells. This is God's mountain, his house, his home. And it is therefore a fearful place. Now, verse 11 sets the scene for what is going to happen next. We're told that on the third day, God will promise to come down onto the mountain, right in the sight of the people. And just notice how dangerous this moment is for the people. They are given a whole series of precautions and preparations to keep them safe from this fearful and holy God. And so look at the various things we see. We see how important um, being clean is. They're told to wash their clothes, verse 10, at verse 14. Now, there's so much that will be said later on about the importance of cleanliness in the sight of a holy God, but we're seeing here straight away that God's people can't simply walk into God's presence. They have to wash their clothes to be prepared. Cleanliness matters. I should say that in verse 15, the um, prohibition on sexual relations. It's not telling us that that sex is dirty or or bad. I think the point here is just that the people need to be without distraction as they prepare for this most significant moment. That's the point, I think. But we see purity, cleanliness matters. And then we see that distance matters. They're told, do not approach the mountain, verse 12. 
Even the priests, verse 22, 23, 24, even them, they can't go up the mountain. It's too holy, it's too scary. And it's very clear, if anyone comes too close, they will die. Then there's the thunder, lightning, thick clouds, and trumpet, verse 16. Some years ago, I went to visit my grandmother on her farm way out in the Midwest of the US, in the middle of nowhere. We arrived one afternoon and we were given the kind of normal tour you would expect when you arrive at someone's house. We were told, oh, well, you know, here's your bedroom and there's the bathroom and the kitchen's there. And oh, and outside, here's the tornado shelter. Um, to two trap doors buried in the ground. And you know, if there's a tornado, we do live in Tornado Alley, just, just run outside, jump into the shelter, round the doors closed, you'll be fine. And uh, you can imagine we were left slightly nervous at this point. Um, where have we come to? Um, and with those encouragements ringing in our ear, we, we went to bed that night. And I remember lying in bed wondering what would happen. And I was w- woken up in the middle of the night, not by a tornado, but by the most violent thunderstorm I have ever encountered. And I was at the top of the house, right beneath the eaves. And I can tell you, as I lay there in the middle of the countryside, I felt as if there was no roof. I felt as if I was lying there naked and exposed as this storm just unleashed itself all around me. And I I can tell you, I was a grown man. I was petrified. I longed for the noise to stop because it was dangerous. It was serious. But I reckon the fear I felt in that storm was nothing compared to the fear the people of God experienced as they saw the lightning, heard the thunder, the smoke, the trumpets, And I don't know how brave you reckon you are, whether you think you're a tough person, able to handle lots. But can I tell you, you would tremble if you had been there. Verse 16, everyone trembles when God comes down on the mountain. And you can imagine verse 17, Moses leading the people towards this awesome, fearful, holy sight. They'd be literally shaking as they followed Moses, thinking, what are we into here? As they come to encounter the living God. This is a perilous relationship that God's people are entering. There might be some here this morning who think, okay, so be it. That was the Old Testament But we live after the New Testament and we discover in the New Testament that God is love. And so surely as we read about this holy and awesome and scary God of the Old Testament, we we needn't be fearful now as Christians. Surely we just read this as if it was talking to other people. How should we respond today as Christians? What can I say? We too should tremble. For The God of the Bible is the same God who never changes. The God of Exodus 19 is the same God as the God that we have come to know in Christ today. And our second reading from Hebrews 12, perhaps if you have a Bible, do flick forward to that second reading. In the the Pew Bibles, it's page 1211. The writer to the Hebrews, writing to Christians is clearly picking up this very moment from Exodus 19. This moment as God's people gather around the mountain. But he says, verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. In other words, you haven't come to a physical Mount Sinai as God's people. You know, there's no mountain here today. And yet we have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, 
We are a gathered people. We are the church of the firstborn. And we have been called and gathered through the blood of Jesus, verse 24, who is our mediator of a new covenant. He is the one who sprinkles us with his blood to bring us purity and cleansing. Which means that as we gather as his people, we can enter his presence not by washing our clothes, but by allowing the blood of Christ to sprinkle us clean once and for all. And so on on one hand, the writer to the Hebrews would say to us, come, come near. The way has been made, fear not. There is a complete washing available in Christ, even with this holy, awesome God. Don't be afraid. And yet, God is still awesome and fearful. And so this section in Hebrews finishes just beyond what we actually had read. But look at verse 28 with me as the writer finishes off the chapter. He says, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. It's a remarkable word, isn't it? On one hand, don't be afraid, Christian. You've been cleansed once and for all by the blood of Christ. But Christian, do not take God lightly. He is awesome and fearful. And so worship him, serve him the right way, carefully. Don't mess around with this holy, awesome God. Exodus 19 helps us to understand the very God we have come into a relationship with. As so often is the case, C.S. Lewis captures the point perfectly, I think, in that conversation in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as Mr. and Mrs. Beaver try to explain to the children exactly who Aslan is. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And so, as Christians, those gathered by God, we should have a healthy fear of the Lord. He is still today the very God of Exodus 19. He is still holy, still awesome, and still fearful. And so when he calls us to give our lives over to him in complete and total service and worship, we should do with reverence and awe. As we close this morning, can I ask, what story are we living with? My fear is that many of us have stopped the cassette tape partway through. We understand and rightly rejoice that God rescues us from sin, but do we understand the second half of the story of the Bible? I think it's very easy for us as Christians to view our wonderful rescue from sin through the blood of Christ a bit like a life insurance policy. We're grateful for it. We very much look forward to cashing it in when we really need it, when our lives here now come to an end, which will bring us through into our lives in the new creation. But in the moment here now, we tuck it into our back pockets and we think very little about it until we need it. But I think Exodus would call us to have a very different story playing around in our minds and our hearts as we begin this new academic year. 
the full story is that, yes, we've been saved, but we are saved for service. Saved to worship this awesome God. Now, today, in the present, we belong to God completely. Our gifts, our opportunities, our personalities, our relationships, our bank accounts, our careers, our holidays, our homes. God owns them all. And he is jealous for us. He wants us to serve him with everything he has given us. And as we think about what we are going to be up to this coming year as rescue people, may we be those who worship the living God. My prayer this term is that God would take our so often cold and distracted hearts, and I include mine when I say that, that he would take our hearts and that he would set them alight once again to be a people who are wholeheartedly sold out to serve him and to love him today. And after all, we're going to be spending our eternities in the new creation, basking in the glory of his presence and serving him with everything we've got. We might as well get used to doing it now. Let's pray. Father, our minds can almost um, struggle completely to comprehend the, the enormous privilege it is to be part of your people, to be your treasured possession, a priesthood, a holy nation. Father, we are thrilled, humbled to be part of such a people, part of such a wonderful rescue in Christ. Father, we ask now for your help Father, we need your help to be the people you'd have us to be. We, we do long, I think, to serve you and to love you with everything we have, and yet we know that so often we don't. And so please help us, Father. We ask this term that your word would help us to think correctly about uh, who you are and who we are. And we do pray that we will be a people who do indeed worship you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.